grasp and they were able <laughs> to like follow through somehow and accomplish the impossible yeah. or reframe our expectations for what we can do. And then there are other people who seem to live their lives in horrible delusion. <laughs> I'm sorry. You just kind of half smiled when you <laughs> said that word delusion. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you're taking some sort of masochistic pleasure in the fact that some no. people do. I think I think it's important to um like have enough of a sense of humor about the fact that we're all vaguely mentally ill. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I think like like uh, finding yourself in it being like delusional, it's a pretty mm-hmm. safe bet that you're delusional a lot more often than oh, you think. Oh, can I, are, are you going to say more? Please no, no, please go on. You can actually talk closer to the microphone oh, okay. too. I'm always afraid of getting, getting close. No, you can't get too close okay. to these mics. <laughs> um, uh, delusion. I think that a lot of us, uh, our ideas of ourselves or our identities are uh, border on delusion. Mm. Like it's, it's, I, I think a lot of it is fantastic. Uh, I have yet to meet someone who's, like wholly grounded in like the material world and reality, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all have ideas about ourselves that uh, don't have a basis in, in our actualities. I think to a degree you need those ideas about yourself to, to, to um, like thrive as an organism in a culture of other organisms you know. I, yeah, I, I agree. Not not even just in a culture of other organisms, but within like uh, a system that might uh, oppress or crush like all individual organisms. Yes. Yeah. There, there's a lot to be said for the fact that we live by the lives that we live by the lies that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Listening to the Magnet Podcast. I read a book recently. We're recording this, I assume. Oh, fabulous. Welcome to the Magnet <laughs> Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld, and we're in the thick of it already <laughs> with the great Sarin Lee. Thanks for being here, Sarin. Thank you, Louis. I read a, um, a book recently that was talking about. Um, uh, this idea of intersubjective fictions. So stuff like money, for example, mm-hmm. like any, basically any lie agreed upon by a uh-huh. group of people becomes an intersubjective fiction that we use to organize ourselves mm-hmm. um, and use to collaborate among uh, among ourselves. And so like, you know, you kind of like take that one step further and realize like how much of my how much of the values that drive me every single day are just made up of bits and pieces of these intersubjective fictions that are being passed around which means that a big part of myself is equally fictitious like partly truth and partly fiction partly real and partly made up Mm -hmm. and it's it's always an interaction between those those parts that that kind of make up everyone yeah um that that kind of uh makes me wonder about like how does it even happen that people fall in love with each other 
because that seems like a a hard thing to navigate like uh uh someone else's you know intersubjective fictions and your own i guess i guess you're lucky if you find someone where uh they they coincide well there's like a a healthy amount of like friction that has to be has to be there because like you need someone whose fictions align with your fictions mm-hmm. enough that you can happily coexist together yes but you also need like those like frictions that push you apart and challenge each other enough to keep things interesting right and and even i would say like keep you your individual selves yeah Mm -hmm. yep the point is (laughs) if you can't be amused at how delusional you are (laughs) then you know you have to worry about it but if Mm -hmm. you can if you can smile mm-hmm. at how delusional you are, there's a lot of pleasure in exploring uh, the uh, the funhouse <laughs> mirror that that is your own ego. Oh yeah, um, I think nowadays I like I think a lot about like how I was when I was younger, like as a teenager or in my early twenties, and uh, I I think now I find myself having like a. a I guess like moments when I, when I feel or see through like, uh, my younger self's eyes mm-hmm. and I, uh, so I, I feel like, uh, a division. I feel like an, uh, a, an, uh, an outside voice being like, like, it's okay. Like reassuring myself, I guess when I'm feeling, uh, I guess maybe like inordinately emotional in response to something that happens in, uh, in my life, like. I, whereas like before I didn't have, uh, I guess like, uh, like any means of like reassuring myself, like mm-hmm. things are okay or like it's, it's fine to have this, uh, reaction mm-hmm. to things. Like now I'm, I, I find myself having that. And sometimes I wonder if it's like a result of my, my day job, uh, <laughs> as like an advisor to like college students. Um, but I, I find I have that more and it's like, uh, I'm able to like tell myself that uh, eventually things are going to be okay, and I, I believe myself. I think that's a difference. There, well, it, it it it's. I think that there's like, just like, um, the longer you live, the more you like. You just kind of like have a richer map of, of like the the paths that you've already treaded. Yeah. And so like you have a better map to reference and, yeah. and then, you know, you're confronted with something that when you were 20 would have like crippled you emotionally. But, yes. <laughs> but now you have a better map to kind of see where it fits in the big picture. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this will be like that. That happens a lot. Not to like pull this into improv so mm-hmm. quickly, but like, Oh no, let's <laughs> like, uh, when like team cuts and stuff, that's oh, like yeah. a really common thing of mm-hmm. like the first team cut is just a horrible experience, but the fourth team cut, you're like pretty robust and pretty mature about yes, like dealing yeah. with it. You, you don't necessarily take it, uh, personally. Yeah. Uh, it's not a reflection of who you are or like an assessment of your worth as a human being. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, these things happen and the timing for this was not right yeah yeah but you have a better map to cope with that exactly yeah but i think that it also like being in a position where you have to be a counselor to other people and help other people Mm -hmm. also gives you a much better perspective on yourself so so you let's talk about that for a second yeah yeah you are um uh uh, an academic uh uh 
Count, uh, yeah, ac- I, academic guidance at uh, City, City College, College um, but just for the art department. Okay. Yeah, um, and technically, I'm I'm uh, one step below an academic advisor. Okay. I'm I'm called an academic advising specialist because I work for just one department rather than like a whole division. Okay. So yeah. What does that entail? <laughs> uh, it entails uh, me basically helping students register for the right classes when they've kind of let things fall to the wayside and have are late to register for classes. Sounds so, pretty familiar. Yeah. I'm, I'm very busy like in the beginnings and ends of semesters. And yeah. then during the middle, it's like there's a, a long lull. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's kind of what happens. So what does your day look like in the lull <laughs> period? I'm, <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm like hesitant to, to say. <laughs> fair. That's fair. What kind of like, What's like a typical, um, like a typical need that a student would have from you? What, um, kind, what kind of what kind of guidance do you offer them? Uh, well, I think a typical need would be like, have I completed all the classes that I need in order to graduate uh, for my major? And I just uh, just fill out a checklist. <laughs> that's that's what I do. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's rare that students actually ask me for. Um, for professional or, you know, like post-graduation guidance, mm-hmm. but that it has happened. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just think in general people end up doing what they actually want to do. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I just try to give them what I think is, you know, the best advice, but who, who's to say it's, I, 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 you know, I, uh, I think I'm not, uh, I'm not them. I can't, I don't live their life. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. I I don't know why this like phrase just popped into my mind, but like I do think that like you kind of come equipped with like um like an irresistible force mm-hmm. that that's kind of like pointing you like in whatever direction is like kind of your best equipped for, mm-hmm. and I, I, like some of us seem to be better than others at like acknowledging it and going with it. And some of us seem to be worse at others and constantly like ignoring it somehow. But like, I do think you ultimately end up um, like finding it's the right way to like phrase it Not exactly where you belong. Cause, but like, I don't know on some like unconscious level, you kind of know what direction you're going to be taking. Sometimes you just need the nudge of someone to give you like permission to take it. Yeah. Or sometimes you need the nudge of someone to like resist it for you to like fight against, to realize. Yes. How you really feel. Yeah. Um, so in a lot of ways it wouldn't necessarily matter what advice I give (laughs) unless the student were just utterly at sea you know, and had no opinion whatsoever, which that never happens. Yeah. So, yeah. Like being in a position where you have to like help people, especially if it's like people who have like waited to the last minute and now <laughs> need to get it done. Like you must deal a lot with like helping people to like map out and manage uh, uh, like their next steps at a, at a point where it's kind of like a little nerve wracking for them. Uh, yeah. A lot of times they, there are students who like, want to get into certain classes, but obviously they're full and I have to give them like a backup plan actually. Like that's what ends up happening during those very busy weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like maybe not something that they necessarily wanted, but um, something that else that's available and 
you know, can fit, uh, fit into their, their, uh, I don't know, their overall like big picture point of going to college, which is like to graduate. So, yeah. So let's back up for a second. Uh How did life lead you to city college? Oh my gosh. Um, I, this is kind of, uh, well, okay. (laughs) I graduated, uh, with a degree in printmaking from Rhode Island school of design in 2012. And that's a lot later than uh, I should like should have graduated from college. Um, but I took a few years off uh, before I started college. So um, I graduated and I moved to New York. Um, and uh, I actually I, I was actually working at a, a tutoring center and I was the assistant manager there hmm. um, just because I had had experience like tutoring before. And um, and it wasn't a very like good job because it didn't come with benefits uh but and and I had to work six days a week but I could come in like in the afternoon till the evening Monday through Friday and then I had to work all day Saturday um so I had experience doing like academic management and um and then uh I my dad actually found this position on like the city college or CUNY system website um and he was like this seems like it'd be perfect for you and they needed someone with fine arts background and who also had experience doing like academic management. So that's what I, yeah, I, was, I applied and I got it. Yeah. Just an ideal fit. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in, you went to the uh, Rhode Island school of design mm-hmm. um, before that you spent a year in Texas. I did. Yeah, actually um, uh, at Un- university of Texas, Dallas. Also studying fine art. Yes. Yeah. What made you leave art. Texas and, uh, and take a break? Oh my gosh. Um, well, uh, for one thing, I think a big part of it was I didn't have a car mm. and, uh, it was so hard to adjust to life in Dallas for me. Um, I thought like, I really felt, uh, um, like kind of isolated and alienated there in a way that I hadn't experienced, uh, even at like the high school that I was at where I was, I didn't really fit in either. Mm. Um, so that, that was that kind of, you know, uh, pushed me to, to apply to transfer. Um, I, I'd actually met a grad student there who had gone to RISD and he encouraged me to apply. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I did that. Um, uh, in terms of like taking time off, it was just, uh, I, I was like going through like some personal stuff. Uh, and I, I like me and my parents both we, we all knew like it was time for me to like kind of take a break and I wasn't really doing well academically. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I'd gone there on, uh, at TUTD on scholarship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I understand like all of the, the ups and downs that like come with like trying to, to, um, navigate like a col- college education. And I was like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can offer this, uh, very varied perspective uh, to students. Whereas like some people who might be doing my positions might've just like sailed through college and been like, well, this is, you know, I, I want to do this and I, you know, I want to be an academic advisor. Mm-hmm. So yeah. were your parents, uh, uh, were your parents good about it when you were making that decision? Uh, they, yeah, they were, I think they were less, uh, they were less good about it when I was like, uh, in, in high school and, mm-hmm. um, I, I wasn't doing so well in my like senior year because I think I was like struggling with like, I, I think like now if I ha- were dealing with the same kinds of 
like uh, like issues or, you know, feeling like depressed and like uh, uh, really like struggling with feeling uh, alone and things like that. Um, now I, I probably wouldn't have, you know, taken taken time off or like, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, th- I think I might have like pushed through things. But at the time, I, I didn't have the tools that were like necessary to deal with that. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, my parents were were like better about it uh, because they, I think they started to understand like more about uh, depression. And yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. I my um, in high school for I spent my first semester in high school at, at Brooklyn Technical High School. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like with the idea eventually to like work towards getting a degree in engineering, but, yeah. but it was like just absolutely the wrong fit yep. and was a really horrible semester and my grades started tanking and, mm-hmm. and I was really miserable and didn't know how to get out of it and, and was like really afraid that I was going to let people down and, you know, yeah. let my parents down and whatnot. And then, uh, um, when like, I finally like opened up about how miserable I was feeling. <laughs> my parents were like, oh, okay, let's just, <laughs> let's just put you in that other high yeah, school. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal. It was such a huge relief and I never felt so close to my parents. It's <laughs> like the, 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 I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting them to instantly be like, well, let's do what's right for you. Let the, you know, like you'll know if you feel this way, then it's definitely not right. And yeah. like, you'll figure it out. There was like a vote of confidence that like really made me happy to have very good parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think my parents have, have changed a lot, like since dealing with, with me having like all of these like ups and downs, like throughout my academic career, because mm. they uh, like, like now when I talk to them about like, uh, you know, uh, career, or, like going to grad school or things like that, they like, they're like, Oh, whatever, like makes you happy. And as long as you're like, like healthy, like we're, we're, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a huge, a huge, like, I think they've like really like rounded a corner, um, in terms of like, uh, being supportive, which I, yeah, it's, I I don't know. It's, uh, it gives me hope that like, uh, uh, I'll, I, I'll also continue to like evolve and change. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure like, I'm sure for, for your parents like the map gets better too it, like are you do you have um siblings um yeah i have a brother who's a year younger than i am okay yeah so like yeah i, I i'm sure that like like I, I don't know at least like i forget sometimes that like everybody's on a learning curve together yeah and you kind of yeah. like assume that like you know your parents like stop learning at a certain point but like everybody's like learning together how to like better deal with each other and, and better be more like open to situations or whatever. Yeah. It's, uh, I think family is a pretty unique, uh, unique thing. Yeah. Yeah. In that regard, because you spend so long, you know, uh, with one another. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, went to high school in Pennsylvania, right? It did. Yeah. And then shot across the country to college initially and, Dallas, Texas. Texas. Yeah. It's a pretty big move. It, yeah, it was big. <laughs> it was like, so, so tell me a little bit about the experience. Cause like there, there's a certain kind of feeling alone in high school. Yeah. That I, like you can feel alone within your own group in a way, like yeah. still feel kind of like odd. Yes. And then I've only been to Texas once and it was Austin. So it doesn't really count. No. <laughs> 
But like, then you go to a place that's like culturally or radically different. So then like you're alone in like basically a foreign culture. Yes. That's, that's what it was like. Yeah. (laughs) I went to my first and only frat party in Dallas. Uh, (laughs) Um, uh, and I remember, um, like it was really, uh, it was like, it seemed medieval because like all of the, the, the women like got together to like pregame separately from the men. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, like I remember like one of the first uh, people that I met, she was like, she looked like a, uh, like a Dallas cheerleader from the eighties. Like her hair was like really like frizzed out and she had like, like metallic, blue eyeshadow and like was wearing like a belly uh shirt that was like a you know cut off like dallas cowboys jersey and i was like what era am i in <laughs> like this um yeah doesn't seem like your vibe no <laughs> i was like wearing khakis <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> what kind of like what kind of person were you like in high school oh my gosh oh i i was like all kinds of conflicted in high school i think Oh, that's what I want to say. I think I was really, really influenced by like all kinds of different uh, like external forces. You know, you have a lot of, uh, I think, different people or groups telling you like what you should be like or who you should be like. And I was trying to like please all of them. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, my, my dad is a runner and he really like pushed me to uh, be very competitive and I was part of the cross country team in my high school. Um, so I was active in that. Um, and I was also, uh, a, a very, um, keen on art classes. Uh, so a lot of my friends that I had outside of like cross country were these like, uh, quote unquote freaks who would like dress and, you know, clothes from Hot Topic and were generally seen as like outcasts from like the rest of, you know, the high school population, which was like, uh, blonde straight hair you know everyone plays soccer Mm -hmm. or something else and um uh and and uh i was i was friends with that group and um yeah and in general my parents had like very very high standards for for uh me in terms of uh like anything that i would attempt to do so like i was i was trying to be like uh uh like uh an, an artist and uh uh, I guess, uh, I, I did have a kind of, uh, like an angsty persona to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I was trying to be like incredibly high achieving and, uh, like, uh, fit this, uh, this, this mold of, of, you know, d- doing everything like yeah. getting good grades. So, being, being, yeah. yeah. It yeah. was, was that a natural fit for you or was that something um, that felt put on you? No, that felt totally put on. And I think that's why my, my grades, like totally, they, they dove in, in yeah. senior year. I couldn't, you know, keep it all together. Cause that wasn't like my real identity. That's kind of what I mean about that idea of like, like an irresistible force in a person that mm-hmm. like, there are some things that you're going to end up being really like driven to do really, really well. You'll become your own perfectionist. Yeah. Because the need to do it well is so strong. strong. And I don't know, for me, that's always been, I think, like drawing and writing. I like when I was a kid, my like I remember my mom told me that like I would always vacillate between like like writer and artist whenever I was asked like what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm -hmm. And um, and like now when I find myself having any like free time or 
um, even when I like have gone on vacations, I'm like what I kind of naturally end up doing if like left to my own devices is is like drawing and writing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was uh, as far back as you could remember. That's you knew that you wanted to be an artist. Um. Or a writer, or something like yeah, some, artistically something. inclined. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yep. I always, I always felt that, and and uh, uh, yeah. Was did you have like, um, were there like people who you looked up to that kind of like planted that idea in your mind, or or was it always just kind of like a natural feeling of this is what I want? Um, it's interesting. I think my mom always encouraged me um, and she was the person that I spent uh, a lot of time with when I was young. Um, and she'd, she'd always wa- like wanted to be an artist as a, a kid too, but her parents actively discouraged her. Mm. They would like, if she won a prize for drawing uh, at her, her grade school, they would like throw, she told me that they would like throw away her drawing oh, and throw away her like crayons and be like, you should focus on, studying you need to be like a lawyer or a doctor so like my earliest memories are of like us drawing and so like I remember she would draw things and I would be like wow like that's amazing it's like magic and then I also remember like at a certain point when I was in grade school I was like seeing that and instead of the reaction being like that's amazing I was like I can do better than that yeah or like I think I can yeah Yeah. do better than that which is um I don't know kind of uh egotistical for like an eight-year-old to think that but that's yeah I remember that I like I uh, there are certain there's like a certain part of you that like because I know that voice that's like looking at something and like I can I can top that yeah and like it is egotistical, but there's like something else to it too. Cause that when you hear that voice, it's like a very kind of clear headed, you just sort of like know something about yourself. You know that you either have the skill or you know that you have like the latent, the latent skill is in there, Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of like self-knowledge and you do probably come across as a little bit like smug with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like hearing like you're a, your own like true inner voice because it's different from like I can prove to you how good I am at something or or let me try or it's just it's totally different thing it's just you just kind of know that you can do that yeah you know that you have that ability somewhere yeah um yeah and so it goes that's interesting yeah it's like I wonder how much we like absorb like on an unspoken wavelength from people around us and how much that like conditions like our early sort of like emotional life. Cause like if your mom is able to, to draw with you when you're very, very little, and I would assume that if she loves drawing, there's probably like a relaxed wavelength coming off of her that you're probably mm-hmm. on some level like tuning into and picking up. Yeah. And I wonder if, if like there is an element of kind of like, I don't know, we take certain things from each other by osmosis, especially when we're little kids and, and it starts to like give us shape or give us a direction. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about science. So. Yeah. But, oh, but at the same time, there's, there's the argument that heredity counts for a lot more than uh, your environment. Yeah. And um, like it's, uh, I, I did have that experience with my mother, but my father is also, he wanted to, like he loved to draw and like paint when he was younger, but he stopped when he was like 15 because he had to work. 
uh, to like support his his family. Mm-hmm. And um, so he uh, he only like recently started going back into art. Like he he started taking like classes at the community college after he retired. And like the uh, there's a thing that he said um, when I think it was like yeah he was like 55 and he was he said. Like it's been forty years since I've picked up a pencil to draw, and I was like, "What? What? <laughs> like, that? That? Uh, that? Like astounded me, and it also scared me because I was like, how can you just put something on hold for forty years that you have like always wanted to yeah. do? Yeah. How's it been from going back with it? Oh, he's still he's still doing it. He's he's drawing all the time, and um, he. I think he's taken like several printmaking classes. Oh, wow. Actually, so he's following in your footsteps. Yeah, he's following in my footsteps, um, and uh, he he really loves it. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think recently he's gotten into like traditional Korean calligraphy. And, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. There, like, um, have you ever read anything by Raymond Carver? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan? Yeah. Um, although, you know, he's of course there's a lot of uh, 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 I don't know. There's a significant amount of like adulation that goes his way that I I guess that uh, his editor was really responsible for his yeah. style of voice, like Gordon Lish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he I've read that like in his early days, the reason why he was so attracted to writing short stories and poetry was because he just had to take care of his family, and so like every night he would put aside like an hour to just go sit in his car and and give himself the task to just kind of like doodle out a story or a poem for an hour. Yeah. And just kind of trained himself accidentally. What a romantic story, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I, I love stories about people who are like, um, are putting their like creative passions, like fitting it into their like work a day lives. Um, I know like William Carlos Williams was a, a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who who was who was like a postal worker? There's someone who's Bukowski. Oh well, <laughs> but he wasn't. <laughs> he was he was never like. Did did he keep that job for? He had it for a long time. Yeah, he did. Oh, he had okay. it for a long time. I think he retired. Uh, I think he like collected a pension on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh no, it was Flaubert who was like a government clerk, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And Kafka was a. <laughs> Kafka was a freak. <laughs> a freakish bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah. But Kafka, like, it sounds like Kafka would punish himself because he would, like, work insane hours and hated it and then go home and then work all night to write his story. So he, like, never slept. But he was also, like, a very punish, like, a self-punishing person in general. Didn't he have, like, a a great uh, love for this, like, woman whom he always wrote, but he would never allow himself to have, like, physical relations with her? That sounds right. (laughs) I don't know. Do you, what's your take on like artists needing to like be a little bit crazy to produce their work? Do you have an opinion on that? I think, I don't know about needing to be a little crazy. I think artists, I don't know. I I mean, maybe we are just like a little bit crazy to begin with. Um, And we need the art to let it uh, out. I don't know if that is the best way of putting it. And I also don't love the term crazy, but uh, um, like, I guess 
I think a lot of times people who are like very sensitive can feel like stifled or you know in in uh in uh reality as mm. other people uh might live it or like accept it uh so I don't think you have to be crazy but uh I think you have to like feel a a desire or a drive that kind of like makes you willing to seem crazier and unusual to other people. Like mm. you're willing to sacrifice like, uh, I guess, I guess, um, like public perception, you know? Um, uh, I, I think you really, it, it serves people well to not care about seeming a certain way. If there are, There's also a, like a selfishness that goes into, producing art just because you need to have the, you need to make the time yeah, yeah. away from other people to, to say what you want to say or, or play the way that you want to play. Mm-hmm. And, and I think probably along with that selfishness is a, a little bit of like self-indulgence in your own idiosyncrasies and, oh, for and what sure. have you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time you have to like not be so you, you can't make like a false idol of your own, uh, idiosyncrasies yeah. or yeah, uh, your own habits, I think. Um, because other people will do that for you, I guess, if you get good enough. Well, then, then it just becomes kind of like all posturing and, yeah. and style. It yeah, becomes it's more empty. like, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's the mannerism of being an artist rather than the, the work, the actual labor. Yeah. 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 One of, uh, John Gardner, wrote uh, a book on like the characteristics of being a novelist and and mm-hmm. one of the strong characteristics was rudeness or like lack of civility and he's like novelists just by virtue of the fact that they are so observant and trying to like capture mm-hmm. other people in 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 words mm-hmm. um, and are like naturally very curious about other people's experiences have a tendency to come across as extremely rude and that if you really want to be a strong, I don't know if I agree with this or not, but if you want to be a strong writer, you have to kind of cultivate a tolerance with yourself of being kind of rude and invasive a little bit. So that was like interesting advice. Again, I don't know that I agree. Yeah. Because I think there are a lot of, there are probably a lot of novelists who are very like soft-spoken and would never intrude on anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Although like, I mean, I don't really know many novelists. Me neither. But I, I assume that um, they're pretty sharp observers. Oh, and, yes. And probably mm-hmm. have pretty strong opinions and may or may not be the best at like, well, I guess to be a really good novelist, you need a lot of time away from other people too. So you yeah. probably have some pretty strange tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> You're super observant, but also like not necessarily super involved yeah, I I read this uh, study that said that being isolated or more lonely makes you more uh, observant of people's emotional states. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably true. Yeah, well, I think like the, the your less... hunger for social contact makes you very keen on like sure. yeah, and also like having distance from other people too, like not being involved yourself. Right. Let's you kind of objectively see things that would be discolored or distorted if you were sure. relating to people. Yeah. It's like that experience of like, I don't know, like seeing a friend or seeing a partner or something 
suddenly from a different perspective and then realizing of like, oh, how did I not see this behavior in you this whole time? And it's like, you did see it, but the funhouse mirror of your, of your, of your own investment in your identity and relationship to them. Yeah. uh, As well as just acclimation. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So there's something about like having that like window between you and other people and that distance that lets you not exactly be objective because I don't believe I don't in believe in the objectivity either. Yeah. yeah. But but less personally invested in your subjective take on stuff. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure like a novelist does a lot of selective re-editing of their perceptions to fit it into a better story. Of course. <laughs> Where does improv fit into all of this? I, yeah, I just wanted to, I was thinking about um, what you're saying about needing a lot of time alone and indulging in your own like idiosyncrasies and uh, like point of view. And um, I don't know, I've always been really attracted to improv, like from the moment that I was first exposed to it, um, which was like in real life, it was in like 2007 or eight um, when I like visited my, my brother's college and they had an improv troupe and um, their, their, their group was like, doing you know like uh, warm-up exercises that like the audience could participate in and I was like I want to do this um I uh and and I, I also when I first moved to New York I was I was like I'm gonna find improv classes like that was my um I don't know that was like really important to me and I I chose Magnet because actually the website interface seemed the friendliest <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> say more argument for design <laughs> um and, um, but, uh, like go- going back to that, um, like idea of, of like indulging in yourself, I like, I thought, I don't know, I consider improv to be art and, um, I, uh, it's like one of the few forms that I've encountered where, uh, you, you're, you're like actively, uh, building on like the voice of, of other pe- voices of other people mm-hmm. and, um, so like, I think the best improv happens when like everyone's voices are, are like amplified or, you know, uh, or, or, or yeah, I think that's the word I want. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, I, I, I think there's not, there's not like a, a, a really huge, uh, difference between like creating art. So, I mean, there, there's like a, there's a difference between, um, like, making art with other people and, and, um, making art yourself. But like, I think the philosophy can, can, you know, uh, exist, uh, the same philosophy can exist in both modes, I guess. Can you expand on that? Um, okay. Um, let me think or, or let me just talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, like when I am, uh, making comics, I, I think I, I try to, I try not to like censor myself when I'm like developing ideas or just in, in the very beginning, like drawing things out. Um, I'll, I'll literally like add a, a line and, uh, and think like, okay, well, like what else can go here? And I won't, uh, like, uh, erase things or, uh, I, I generally don't like work in pencil. Mm. Um, and, uh, it's it's really like like oh if this uh like component of the image exists then what else 
can happen or like what else can be there along with it. And I feel like I, um, I, I've always, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know whether that's a result of me having taken, uh, classes or uh, trained in improv, uh, or if it's, if it's just, uh, uh, if that existed beforehand, but, um, I think that, uh, uh, I don't know what I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think the, that the process in, in like, in both, uh, like improv and drawing for me has, has always been to, to like accept what's there and to build off of that. Do you, um, have you ever read Jules Pfeiffer's, autobiography by any chance no i haven't um he, he talks in that because he he went from cartooning to eventually became a, a playwright oh i didn't know that yeah but like via his association with second city oh like he used to go to second city a lot and ended up becoming like friendly with them and and found that he his working style as a cartoonist was very sympathetic with their approach as improvisers yeah he was very taken with it because he was saying that he would start like a nine panel comic Mm -hmm. and panel one would just start drawing something and would have no idea. Yeah. What would happen next? I'm sorry. I just, I responded to the drawing through that, but I, I, um, I don't really work the way a lot of like cartoonists who might like map out like a a story and like pencil things in and like work with what might be like the best, uh, like narrative or way to show a narrative. I, I, yeah, I, I start out. I I love to start out with no idea and um, to to build an image out uh, uh, like piece piece by piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's there's like an element to follow the follower to it. It's just yeah. in one situation, the follower is like your own imagination. Yes. Yeah. Um, were you like specific? Because I you you studied printmaking. I did. Were you trained in? cartooning and storytelling or was that something that you have taught yourself um that's something so actually when i was doing printmaking i was trying to do anything besides make images and i was trying to find any excuse to like make text-based work or like narrative-based work um so um a lot of you know obviously like handwritten pieces but um there's one piece that I did that was I I wrote like a few words each on like a slide carousel on on each slide and um if you were to go into the gallery space uh people could um like click through the the story that was on the slide reel um and I guess like whoever was in charge of the the clicker would kind of be the the one who's like in charge of um if there were like people behind him reading along Mm -hmm. or her (laughs) they um uh uh, and it was just by by fa- by virtue of the fact that that person has the the clicker rather than like he's naturally supposed to like cater to the other groups who might be reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I thought that that was just like an interesting thing to have like a a private act, which is you know reading is generally a a, a private thing, especially in terms of like. A, a longer story yeah. um, and have it be a, a public or like a, a concerted effort. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Why were you resistant to, uh, to image making? 
Oh man. Um, (laughs) I, I think I was embarrassed, honestly. Uh, it was like a very fine arts focused, uh, department Mm -hmm. and, um, a lot of people thought it was not cool. And I fell victim to, um, like wanting to not seem uncool, you know? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's the simple answer. And I was so terrified of being like, uh, of of my work being like critiqued as as being not relevant yeah that i i just actively avoided like representation of any kind of like figures when did that change that happened after i left school yeah <laughs> and um i i wasn't really like drawing anything that i felt like showing people for for a while and then i i think it's only been in the last like uh year or so that i i I realized like, oh wait, if I just, uh, marry like text and, you know, uh, image, I, I can, I don't know. It's, it's really fun. And I can say a lot of things that I, I, I can't say if I kind of divorce both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems like cartooning is the very natural form of self-expression for you. Cause it, it like, your work is very beautiful and very funny. Thank you. <laughs> and very, it comes across as very effortless and very. There's like a. I, 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 I've been like thinking all day about like the right way to to explain it, and I don't think it makes sense out of my own mind. But mm-hmm. th- there's something very like free or spontaneous about it. It just seems. It seems right. It doesn't seem like mannered at all. It, this seems like a very authentic mode of expression. Thank you. Um, that's. It, uh, yeah, I, I do go to cartooning like as a way to like unburden myself Mm -hmm. as it were. Um, but it also isn't as, as, you know, uh, effortless as as it appears. appears. Sure. Right. Um, nor, nor should it be. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, uh, I, a lot of times I will create like an image or like a situation and, and the words that go along with it. Um, in in the way that I described, um, but I'll I'll redraw or rework things, and I have a lot of like bad uh, or cartoons that I I don't consider to be you know funny even to me, and yeah. I, I don't I don't show them. Um, so uh, th- there's I don't know cartooning. Um, it's it 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 is it is an authentic mode of of uh, expression for me. But um, I've I've just been like thinking about this recently because um, I finished uh, um, the like uh, the putting together a PDF of like a mini book that's coming out um, from Tiny Splendor a while uh, like in January eighteenth. Um, but they they actually the the press that's printing it they got robbed, so they they're having to um, push back my printing that book. Oh no! Yeah, I know, um, but. I think like after I've, I, I uh, submitted it, I was like, I was like, I feel like drained and it's like felt harder to, to, to get back to drawing, uh, those things regularly. So like, this is an interesting time right now. Um, because I was like, I, I before I, I had to like put together a book, I, I always just felt like, like, oh, this is just where I go to, um, like free myself as it were, mm-hmm. um, through, through like work and craft, you know, um, uh, but but now it's it's felt more arduous in terms of 
uh, uh, like producing things. It sounds like the uh, like the main reason why more improvisers aren't creating their own mm-hmm. material and writing one person shows or writing plays or or yeah, you know the. There are so many more improvisers in the world than there are improvisers who are dedicated to crafting really good sketches. And and part of that, I think, is like with so much more work and and obviously, Mm -hmm. but also such a different experience and such a different pressure when you have to produce versus like you're very free to this is a place where you go to kind of unwind. Yeah. The contents of your mind. Yeah. Um. I, so, yeah. so no, sorry. Oh, no. no, no, no. I, I, what were you going to ask? Well, I was going to ask, so, so the way that your mind and comic sensibilities operate when you're sitting down to draw mm-hmm. versus the way that your mind and comic sensibilities operate when you're collaborating with other people in a show, mm-hmm. uh, 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 what's the overlap there? Like how, how are you, how are you approaching improv and does it relate to the way that you're approaching cartooning? So <laughs> I I think the I think the, where there I see or where I experience overlap is um when you're kind of in a state of um like you get yourself like to the theater or to the show space or you get yourself to your desk to sit down to draw but like after that point you're not really in charge if that makes sense mm-hmm. um like that uh, like, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I guess, um, like, even though it's, it's not always like that, uh, like sometimes it will feel effortful to do improv, to perform or to, to sit down and draw, um, when you do kind of tap into something that's, uh, that exists outside of your own will, I guess. Uh, not to sound too mystical, but um, uh, it, it kind of feels like... Uh, I think it makes you more free to make things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also kind of feels like it, it already existed. <laughs> like, if that makes sense. Um like it's like oh of course this would happen or of course this uh character would say this thing um it just seems uh i i don't want to say natural but i yeah i guess it it just seems that you don't actually have an an uh an active hand in it <laughs> this doesn't entirely relate to what you just said but okay. i i was just reminded of yeah. it when you said it, it's like it kind of already existed. Yeah. It, when I was younger, I, I used to enjoy drawing a lot as a, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, sometimes I would kind of have this experience where like I would do portraits a lot mm-hmm. and the, the ones that came out really well mm-hmm. when I was sitting looking at the blank page, I could kind of see the portrait on the page already. Yeah. I, it was like an image that would flash of it and then I could draw it. And then the ones where I couldn't see it on the page already tended to come out like just wrong somehow. They like the perspective was off or I like, I just didn't like get the personality and a similar thing happens in improv shows for me sometimes too, where 
sometimes I'll be in scenes where I'll just kind of like see stuff in the scene. I'll like see something about my partner or see something about myself, just like in my mind's eye. And those scenes tend to feel really vivid and lively. And I feel very free to kind of get lost in them and, and, and not care so much about doing them well, just kind of doing them and having fun with them. Yeah. Um, I just want to, uh, say like, uh, th- there is that emphasis on, on not inventing mm-hmm. in improv and, uh, it's, it's not, it's not inventing, it's discovering. And mm-hmm. like, it feels like that, that, that reality, it, it has its own, uh, roles and that's kind of how, it, uh, I, like, I think it, uh, like the, the, the comics that I feel good about, like that, that's how they feel. Like they have their own roles. It's not me dictating, um, uh, thing like, Oh, this is a funny idea. I'm going to like, uh, you know, like extrude like a comic like through this idea. If that makes sense. It's, it's like, it's not there to serve, uh, like any concept that I have. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, Right. There's yeah. something predetermined yeah. about yes. that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, like, it's almost like when you're looking at the, at the, at a page and you're seeing the, the picture in your mind first, mm-hmm. it, it, like, you're working with that image. Yeah. And there's something kind of similar when you're improvising too, where, like, it, 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 I mean, you're making stuff up as you go. It's not like you're not inventing things. Mm-hmm. So, like, that note of don't invent, discover is, like, kind of a good observation and kind of not because technically <laughs> you're inventing you are, the whole thing. Yeah, you are. But what it's referring to is more those moves that are all about being predetermined versus those moves that are about working with this kind of other imaginary thing that's there with you. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, like, partly there and it's not 100% in your control yeah your behavior is modified by the existence of this image or the existence of this idea or the existence of this energy or whatever and then you're working with it yeah to kind of yeah. tease out what is there if that makes sense yes whereas in the predetermined one it's entirely a question of you of, are oh, willing this thing to happen. right like you have a concept and you're executing it right. that feels i hate that in improv and i also hate it in like making visual art it it feels dead to me i i despise it. yeah 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 <laughs> i i i think of that um like when i'm writing sometimes in terms of like I'll read something that will feel to me like this person already knew the point that they wanted to make. And then this story is simply a defense of the point that they have already predetermined. Mm -hmm. And then I'll read something else or I'll write something else that feels a lot more alive and spontaneous and organic. And there's just kind of a sense of, it feels like the writer of this figured out where they were going by getting there. Yeah, like they kind of lived the, the like actualization of the story. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Like the finished story is is the the artifact of their process of yes. figuring out the story, yeah. rather than it being a description of this idea that they had yes. beforehand. And you can just kind of like feel the difference. Something Definitely. that feels like it kind of breathes and lives versus something that feels very like smug. Yeah, and. And like devoid of uh, anyone's inner life. Yeah. Yeah. It like, 
Yeah, exactly. It like lacks personality yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. There was another question I wanted to ask you. And I'm blanking on it. Oh, it, okay. it's okay. <laughs> so instead, I'm going to go ahead with this. Your dad mm-hmm. runs ultra marathons, I'm told. Yes, he does. Um, so that's like anything that's 50 miles or above. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head in, <laughs> in you know, horror. <laughs> 50 miles, Jesus. Yeah, he, is, he has a personality where he's just like, I don't think he's happy if he's like, hasn't like, packed his schedule with like like work for himself like he ultimately he finds it like incredibly rewarding obviously yeah. but like if if he's given like downtime i think he'll be like i'm gonna find something to do yeah. with this <laughs> yeah how do you manage downtime oh gosh um i i the thing is i that i i would uh i i draw in my in my so-called downtime um and uh, I, I guess when I'm not doing that, I, I try to see people and, um, uh, you know, uh, th- that's that's what I do. I guess if I need to be completely alone then and to be doing nothing, um, which happens, um, I don't know. I think I'm like an, everyone else. I probably watch a movie or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or read. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about improv yes <laughs> so has it been was like being a dedicated performer something on your radar for a while or was that something that you kind of like <laughs> started with panel one and then arrived at panel nine yeah that's it's the latter cool. <laughs> um i never like even now i i'm like i'm uh, I love to perform, uh, but I guess I never thought of myself as a performer. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just, I just love, uh, like the, the feeling of, of creating something, uh, it, it feel and, and living it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, it's, it's like so alluring and so appealing. Um, and I, uh, um, I don't know. And like seeing other, uh, performers who are, uh, amazing at, 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 you know, kind of giving life to their own voices just made me want to keep like coming back and doing more. Um, it's yeah. actually one of my favorite things about watching you perform. It, it, it is, um, your ability to inhabit, uh, uh, just a reality up there in, in a very like alive way. I've always admired, like you will make things very, very real in a way that I just kind of believe it seems right. It's like clear to me that you're living out what you're, what you're creating on stage. And sometimes it's not always clear. Sometimes you you see the performance in someone's behavior, mm-hmm. which I'm not trying to draw a distinction between no. good or bad. Mm-hmm. It's different styles and different approaches, mm-hmm. but there are times where you can see someone kind of creating it and presenting what they're creating. Yes. And there are other times where you can kind of see people kind of living their way through it. And I would, I would put you in the latter. Camp. Yeah. 
I like, I, I guess like the reason why I'm talking about all this, like it, it's interesting just like delving into people's like creative processes because some, some people seem to be way more like in life in general. And then with their work, it's way more about, they kind of know what they want. Yeah. And then it's every step of the way refining how they go about bringing that into the world. Yeah. I I admire people who do that. Me too. Yeah. I, and I feel rotten about myself all the time that I'm not more like that because when you're around those people, you feel like, oh man, I'm, I must just, I'm doing it wrong. Doing I'm doing it, wrong. it all wrong. Yeah. I don't have a plan. <laughs> I don't have a destination in yeah. mind. I don't like, I'm, I guess I'm lazy or I'm not mm-hmm. motivated, but, but that's not necessarily true because there's the other approach too, which is you kind of begin with panel one and see where it takes you. I personally feel a lot that feels like, like it speaks to like my irresistible force a little bit more. Yeah. Like it seems artificial when I decide on goals for things. Yes. <laughs> it feels like I'm assimilating like what I should be doing. Yeah. I, um, I actually started reading uh Violet Spallin's like improvisation for the theater recently. Yeah. And I think in like the very beginning, she talks about like how we have these like voices of authority, mm-hmm. like in, in, in us and, uh, or like we've, we've lived like all of our lives with, like so many like voices of authority. And um, I know I, I'm someone who's kind of like internalized those like voices saying like I should do things a certain way or like be a certain way. And, and so uh, like, like now I, I do have an easier time of saying like, no, that's not necessarily how I want to do things. That's just me um, kind of like comparing myself to how other people are living. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so now I think I'm, I'm more, uh, I'm definitely more like trusting of, of um i guess like what feels more right to me that's also i think like i have two thoughts on that Mm -hmm. Uh, one is like for a long time i i like really drove myself crazy with like what is my own real take on things and what am i just like just other people's thoughts and authority that i'm Uh like parroting back yeah and uh, I kind of got to a point where I realized, like, I'll never really know. Yeah. It, it, like, if I'm orienting myself to try to get rid of internalized authority in my mm-hmm. own mind and find my own true self, yeah, I, then I'm going to be completely lost in the woods because that's it, never yeah. There's no happen. such thing as like an unadulterated self. No. Yeah. It, it, it's just you kind of wrestle with these different voices, and it's sort of like digestion a little bit you digest some of those voices and then they just become kind of a part of you and other parts of those voices, you end up, they're incompatible and you just kind of learn through experience and and by wrestling with them that like they don't pass comfortably through your system and then you kind of crap them out eventually. Yeah. But like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because when you started talking about wrestling, I thought about that painting by, I think it's Matisse of like Jacob wrestling the angel. Uh Uh-huh. And then you're talking about like crappy stuff out. And I was like, yeah, this disparity is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the process of life. It's all a whole. But like, yeah, I I think like you just, your map gets a little bit better and you start to be able to better sense like, uh, um, 
no, that goes against my grain or this goes with my grain. Or sometimes this is a frustration that's a useful frustration mm-hmm. for me right now. Like I need some frustration. I need a little, I got to get Push. stronger by going against yeah. my own grain. Do, well, do you ever struggle with like, um, like if something rubs you the wrong way, like, uh, yeah. How do you, how do you kind of suss out like, like what is, uh, kind of just like, in a healthy way, like pushing you out of your comfort zone and what's just like wrong to you. I, I like, I don't know actually, because yeah. I, I find like looking back on like experiences that have been really valuable for me or like, I feel like I've, I've grown in some way mm-hmm. or I had like an adventure or something. Mm-hmm. Those experience almost always started with something that I tried like hell to get out of doing mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it just broke my routine. Yeah. And I was so miserable uh, um, <laughs> getting into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like a tipping point where suddenly you find like, oh, I'm having a brand new experience and mm-hmm. I'm having to use my brain in a different way because yeah. I'm not just repeating the same routine all the time. I'm having yeah. to like actually um, like absorb, respond and adapt to yeah, things. Yeah. And then you kind of grow from doing that. So. I don't really know how to suss out when you're legit out of your comfort zone versus when you're just doing something that's wrong for you. Mm-hmm. But I think like my wa- my map for it at this point is big enough to include knowing that just because something feels like every ounce of me does not want to do this thing <laughs> doesn't mean that I shouldn't be doing it. It just means that um, uh, inertia is super powerful. <laughs> I don't know. what how, like How do you suss the difference out? I don't know. That's just something that I've been kind of like trying to, uh, that is something that I've been trying to deal with, uh, especially in terms of like routine, uh, when it comes to like drawing or when it comes to improv, I guess there's not really a routine so much as like maybe like roles that, uh, that you end up, uh, performing or like, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, like roles, maybe like within a, a team uh, that you end up fulfilling because like that's the the role you generally tend to fulfill in yeah. the team. Yeah, that kind of thing. I guess like like a way to measure it because like there is like, so there are certain routines that are, are useful and certain ones that just feel familiar. Mm-hmm. Like Like for example, at this point, I have like a pretty strongly ingrained nightly habit of going home and eating chips and drinking beer and watching something on TV. Mm -hmm. Not the most harmful thing in the world, Mm -hmm. but also come 11 o'clock at night, there's a powerful bodily response that kicks in Mm -hmm. that is strongly encouraging me to go home, (laughs) drink beer, eat chips and watch TV. And there's like other habits that you build up that are like equally equally strong mm-hmm. you know like teaching improv or something you build up like certain habits about how to approach a class and yeah. those also kick in so i guess like at the end of the day it's like a question of like measuring what the output is like how useful this habit is to you mm-hmm. because it's a very strong emotional force so like what's the output if you have right. these like strong habits that also result in you drew x number of drawings or, mm-hmm. or whatever then that's probably a habit you want to continue to like refine. Mm -hmm. If it's a habit that doesn't have much of an output, then you have to kind of be honest with yourself about like, is this investment worth it? Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot more recently, just as I'm like becoming more and more like emotionally aware of, of like 
the limits of my own lifetime. Uh-huh. It's like going from an abstract idea to like recognizing that like, oh yeah, every breath is one less breath. Not to be like dark about it. No, it, it's true. Um, I was thinking about that this morning while I was walking to work. I was like, every mo like time is, uh, it just keeps rushing forward. Yeah. Uh, and like try as you might to remain in one moment or um, even if you feel that all of the passing moments have been very similar to others. It's, it's, it's new, it's different. And it's always, it's always, uh, 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 you know, it's lost. It's past. Did you ever read, um, shit. Now I can't remember the title. <laughs> it's a book by Walter Pater on Renaissance art. Um, it might mm-hmm. just be called studies in Renaissance art. I haven't read it. I'm going to horribly paraphrase this, but he, he made the, he's talking about like, how to criticize art. Mm-hmm. And one of his points was um, in every moment, some aspect of this moment is attaining its perfection right now. And the really Whoa. good critic is tunes in to find what's perfect about this thing right now. So you, you tune yourself in to describe, the, you know, the, the perfection of this cloudy day is different than the perfection of this rainy day is different, like whatever it is. Uh-huh. It's like an interesting way to think about that, that, we tend to like group these moments in and notice what's similar about them. And then mm-hmm. you kind of take things for granted, but to kind of like tune yourself into like, what's the little difference here? What's like the little thing around me. That's like a little bit more mature and perfect yeah, than what yeah. was here yesterday at this time. I don't know. I think about that sometimes too, just as like a, a, a reminder to like try to be a little bit more awake and alert and, and not just be on autopilot all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was reading this part of a Rilke poem today that I like recopied out. Um, But it was talking about uh, how you should be like alive to the fire of change. Mm. Um, And uh, uh, that like, if you try to like close yourself in, like inevitably something will like shatter you. (laughs) Um, and I think that's true. I think so too. And I, I like, I can see a person taking that very like bleakly. <laughs> yeah. but like I, to me, I find that like a very positive message. Right. Like if you calcified, you know, so much, I think, I, uh, I think there's, you're, you're not actually going to stay that way that yeah. like new things will continue to like break you open and, and, you know, cause you to be like, uh, vulnerable and open, uh, just like a series of chrysalises, you know? Well, I, that goes back to like delusion and, and like objectivity versus subjectivity. Cause mm-hmm. like, I, I think what part like calcifying certain takes on the world become delusional when those takes are no longer relevant to the world that you're in. Yeah. And, and you can never really have an objective take on the world, but you can have an, an adaptive take on the world. And I think that's also the difference between like invention versus discovery is like invention comes from the mindset of determining what should be there and then reacting to what should be there instead of what is there. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's when you become fragile and that's when you become really breakable. Mm -hmm. But that sort of like adaptability to discovery is like, let's see what's here and let's see how we can work with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess like, I don't know for me, it's like, 
yeah, everything changes and, and, and rolling with that is a useful thing. Yeah. Every breath is a last breath. And that seems like really bleak, but also that's what makes things grow, grow and be real. Yeah. And, 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 you know, not just be like a figment of our imagination, but it has consequence. And so you have to then kind of take a good look at yourself and decide like, well, how do I measure the value of my choices? What output is coming from this that I decide, even though it's intersubjectively fictional, <laughs> I'm the one imposing the value on this. Mm-hmm. Am I getting the value out of this particular habit that I want? Or is this just kind of spending my energy in a bad place? Yeah. Um, can I just say, I feel like when I came to New York and started taking classes in improv, it kind of, I felt like I found what was like missing in my art education. Like um, as like a fine artist, uh, like, being kind of like taught how to to operate in in that uh uh in that role of taking yourself seriously as an artist um everyone was kind of encouraged to really like uh 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 i i guess um like define like your point of view and to create things out of that like predetermined point of view and i uh um I guess like when I, I started taking classes in improv, I, uh, I kind of sh- shattered that uh, like tautology. Um, uh, yeah. And I had a very similar experience in film school where yeah. it, it was about expressing, using the medium to express your point of view. Yes. Which implied that you knew your point of view mm-hmm. to express. And I think a lot of people put on a point of view I I certainly did yeah you put on a point of view and then you express the one that you put on and uh improv also like had that same effect on me too Mm -hmm. because you don't have to determine beforehand what it is you find it as you're doing it Mm -hmm. it it actually helps you find your actual point of view Mm -hmm. pretty sweet yeah it's pretty awesome (laughs) that seems like a pretty good place to end the conversation yeah. Serene Lee, this has been the most fabulous of delights. Thank you for talking. Thanks for having me. Serene is an amazing artist. You can uh, see all of her cartoons on Instagram. How would people find that? Because I don't have Instagram, but I saw it on my computer. Oh, uh, you can go to Instagram.com slash Serene with an S at the end. So it's S-U-E-R-Y-N-N-S. Please check it out. <laughs> it's amazing. And you can see Serene perform every week with the heel at megawatt wednesday nights is there anything else you want to plug um not no all right serene lee folks <laughs> thank you everyone for listening a couple of other thanks as always first off to our producer evan ford barden again to our executive producer ed herpsman and finally once more to all of you good kind fine people for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed it please go on itunes and give us a positive shout out that is very helpful uh thank you very much Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. I know you're going to listen to this much later than Valentine's Day, but we're recording this on Valentine's Day, and I hope that you share your love with those who are uh, uh, um, just every well, not everyone, but like those who you love. Those share you your love. love with those who you love. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> Inspiring words. Goodbye, everyone. Good. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.